Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 31, The House Divided, The Shattered Union and the Fate of the Upper South. The Battle of Fort Sumter, if one wishes to call it that, caused a moment of shock across the nation. Although not one man died from direct enemy action, that had resulted more from the vagaries of chance than a deliberate decision. The Confederates shot enough cannonballs to turn masonry into rubble and the Union fired back, as long as opportunity allowed. Americans had now become intent on killing each other, and that decision could never simply be walked back. Yet when that moment of shock passed over, however, the response from Maine to the Rio Grande erupted in a wave of jubilation and rage, or perhaps even both, depending on exactly where one stood, figuratively and often literally. Some overly passionate Southerners on the tricolor cockade of France and cheered a new revolution. But to borrow James McPherson's pithy summary, they may have been happy for the liberté and the fraternité, but not so much egalité. In the city of Washington, bordering the South, Lincoln had acted with every hope of avoiding provocation or violence. But this having failed, the foundations of federal effort came together. By not striking first, he risked losing the political initiative. But in exchange, the Union itself became the victim of traitorous forces who, in the eyes of all Northerners, had lost all moral high ground. Before the fall of Sumter, many, though probably not a majority, of Northerners leaned strongly towards allowing the erring sisters to go in peace. While most felt a great national loyalty to their Union of States, they did not want to coerce by force or violence anyone into remaining inside it. Afterwards, the line between Republican and Democrat vanished in the North, at least for a year. Virtually no politician opposed or even wanted to oppose the drumbeat of war any longer. Perhaps more curiously, even the often staunchly pacifist abolitionist movement turned right round and came to support the war. With that noise ringing in his ears, on April 15th, Lincoln issued a fateful call for 75,000 militiamen to serve for a period of 90 days in order to suppress the rebellion. It would take, in the end, well in excess of 20 times that number to finally accomplish the task. And yet, Lincoln's first call for troops alone probably represented the largest army ever assembled in the Americas, once added to the existing tiny pre-war professional army. Unfortunately, these 90-day men proved of almost no use whatsoever. However, until Bull Run, that wouldn't become apparent. Additionally, the troops raised greatly exceeded the quotas requested in the North, as so many volunteers flocked to the colors, and so quickly, that the expanding military could barely keep pace with everything. This was not so much a military organization as a military de-organization, with a concomitant lack of discipline. This will come back to haunt the North soon enough. Worryingly, from Virginia and all the southern states still formerly within the United States, however, there came a sullen silence. Tennessee's Governor Isham Harris sneered back that his state would not furnish a single man for the purpose of coercion, but 50,000 for the defense of our rights and those of our southern brothers. Similar responses came from most of the Upper South. From Lincoln's view, the fiery fury of Kentucky Governor McGoffin and Missouri Governor Claiborne Fox Jackson were bad enough, but to add to his woes, the governors of Maryland and even Delaware responded with only a suspicious silence. 
The response of Southern politicians contained more than a little deception, even self-deception, but it did largely point to the bare fact at issue. Were they Americans or Southerners first? Which identity would win if forced to choose? For all the reasons we've covered before, slave owners by and large sided with a self-created identity that always combined the South with slavery. The balance of power depended greatly on the degree they dominated politics and culture in each state. In Virginia, plantation-owning quasi-aristocrats dominated the entirety of the state government, and they would lead Virginia into the crucible of war. On April 17th, with the gunsmoke hardly cleared from the skies above Sumter, Virginia led its way out of the Union. Ostensibly, of course, they were responding to Lincoln's call for militia, but in practice, they had already made their choice in their hearts. When news of the attack on Sumter arrived, great crowds of cheering secessionists flocked into the streets of many major cities, especially in Virginia. And we should not forget that secessionism in part was an urban ideology as much or even much more than a rural one. Most cities in the South, especially the politically aware residents of the various capitals, strongly supported secession. Education, and for lack of a better terms, sophistication and worldliness, appear to have inclined Southerners towards the Confederacy. Conversely, the more isolated and less developed a region was, the less it supported secession. In Richmond, however, an impromptu gathering of Virginians assembled from across the capital and declared for the Confederacy, adding to the excitement and passions of the moment. When former Governor Henry Weiss declared that the state militia were even at that time seizing the federal arsenals at Harper's Ferry, the legislature joined the cheer and ratified secession. And though Weiss's declaration came prematurely, in fact, a soldier named Thomas J. Jackson was indeed in the process of claiming Harper's Ferry and pushing out the federal forces. However, even at that moment of emotional fever pitch, a large portion of the state's northern and western regions resisted secession, and even at the last refused to vote for it, at a time when a show of solidarity might have been expected. This would not go unnoticed by Washington, D.C., but at that moment, President Lincoln lacked the power to do anything about it. The turn of Virginia's coat sparked a further wave of defections. Arkansas when Confederate on May 6th. Tennessee, which had previously rejected secession, joined the following day, though subject to a referendum. Then North Carolina agreed on the 20th and thereby removed a potentially dangerous internal border threat to the Confederacy. The latter two, like Virginia, had large anti-secessionist followings within their borders, which would become a significant issue during the war years. The entire Appalachian region viewed the topic of secession with deep suspicion. They directly understood it to be in the interest of slave owners and at a direct cost to themselves. For their part, the pro-secession majority seems to have not thought about the holdouts at all, and this blindness would come back to haunt them. While on the topic, Tennessee's unusual provision of submitting a referendum suggests some basic facts about secession. There were no well-documented free and fair elections in this moment, and there is some possibility that the public did not support the Confederacy nearly as strongly as Southern politicians did. Historians have come down differently on this subject. Republicans, you may recall, were not even placed on the ballot in the South, and no Republican could have run for office there without risking a suit of tar and feathers. Pro-slavery factions in Kansas had repeatedly committed ballot fraud and illegitimately seized political power 
rather than allow people to freely vote. And then in Tennessee, the referendum returns suddenly skewed wildly in favor of secession in the West and Middle regions. Although there were, certainly was support for slavery and secession there, some question remains about whether most people thought they even could campaign for the Union, as well as how honestly the votes were counted. These results switched abruptly towards secession, and we lack a good historical explanation for that shift apart from guessing that perhaps the attack on Fort Sumter did sway public opinion. There is ultimately question about whether Tennesseans genuinely voted to go Confederate, or whether perhaps the forces of secession tilted the table a little. But in the end, it didn't matter. One way or another, the state had formally left the Union, and most of its power would be arrayed against the United States. In any case, with Tennessee, the Confederate wave stopped, just as it seemed inevitable that it would sweep the border states as well. Yet despite the pro-Southern sympathies of the governors of Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri, the forces of secession in all three states failed to overwhelm the Loyalist Union side. In fact, all three states would turn out a clear pro-Union majority. The apparent power of secession, combined with the fact that slave owners' wealth and political influence helped add weight to their demands, made the breakaway of one or all of these states a very real possibility. In the end, none of them would secede, but a fair number of soldiers from all three states would serve in the Confederate cause. In retrospect, and probably in Lincoln's view at the time, the balance of power within the Union almost certainly rested on the shoulders of the border states. Had Maryland switched sides, the capital itself would have been cut off, while Missouri and Kentucky combined could have added a great deal more manpower, resources, financial and material, and finally an infinitely stronger strategic position to the Confederate war efforts. In addition, Northern war weariness would have increased much faster and to a far greater degree than it did. Perhaps the public would have simply rejected the struggle of war entirely, seeing it as hopeless. Instead, that did not happen. The legislatures of the border states may have been a bit quiet in their own right, but on the other hand, they also declined the Confederacy's obvious attempt to stampede them into a snap decision. More than a little politicking lay behind this. As we will see, Lincoln tread very carefully around Kentucky in the early months of the war, which rebounded to his considerable benefit. Governor McGoffin of Kentucky, for instance, will go from leaning south to a proponent of abolition within the span of four years, a startling change for a man who had tried to unite the South in opposition to that same force in 1860. But these were complicated times. Governor Jackson of Missouri followed a very different trajectory. In the meantime, he engaged in some of the most wild treason imaginable and eventually attempted to raise an army to conquer his own state for the Confederacy. It is possible that the Confederate sympathies of Jackson actually weakened his cause, as it became very quickly clear that he was wildly out of step with Missouri's overall political leanings. The central regions of the state, around the Missouri River, held both slavery and plantations, but most of the rest had few slaves, or even none at all. Additionally, the eastern portion of Missouri, near St. Louis, had become wealthy and commercial and industrially productive, and it leaned Union. They had little use for slavery there, and held a large and particularly abolitionist German population. Nonetheless, in the whole, this moment appeared to be a triumph for the Confederacy, and for Virginia in particular. 
her militia would soon form the core of the Confederate Army. Military officers from the Old Dominion represented the most illustrious Southern names in the war to come. Virginia's industry, though tiny compared to that of many individual Northern states, also represented a huge proportion of that available to the South as a whole. Its population would swell the ranks of the Eastern armies. It held perhaps the most developed rail network in all of the South, and also contained several notable federal military installations, all quickly captured, which would bring vital war material, both directly in the form of cannon and guns, but also the machinery and facilities to produce them. It became the industrial hub of Confederate power. While the production of its farms would fill the bellies of Confederate soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia until stretched beyond the means available. To cement this reality, Virginia quickly offered Richmond as the new capital of the Confederacy. In reality, this represented the state's desire to reclaim its power and prestige, which it had lost over time to outward migration and the slow roll of economic change. Although this was likely meant as a non-negotiable offer, the Confederate delegates received it graciously and found no very great difficulty whatsoever accepting. Montgomery, Alabama, though a fine city for its day, remained a small, though well-ordered town of a few thousand souls. We should understand, of course, that in 1860, many states had similarly sized capitals. Montgomery, for instance, at the time was about the same size as Springfield, Illinois. Richmond, though, Richmond had a much more developed urban environment and urbane culture. And the more comfortable and spacious capital had many of the facilities needed to function as a government. Though its location did not, perhaps, represent the ideal central position for leadership, it still commanded, as mentioned, a good rail hub. And anyway, telegraphy was rapidly changing the nature of communications across the country. However, Richmond is awful close to Washington, and there are relatively few natural barriers to invasion from the north. At this time, however, Southerners thought little of the danger. They accepted casually and without any thought of the future. Many assumed there was no real threat at all that the North would soon back down entirely. And this betrayed a dangerous misunderstanding of the political realities. Arguably, this went far beyond the level of politics into statecraft. The formation of a new national identity is no easy thing. It required, and still requires, some form of pre-existing social context. This the Confederacy had, in terms of slavery and Southern culture. Yet the two things are not perfectly coincidental, and that raised some very great questions. What was the fundamental line that gave rise to Confederate consciousness? Was it slaveholding, white supremacy, Southern culture, states' rights? To those standing atop the social hierarchy in this moment, there appeared to be no significant barriers between these ideals. But the lines existed anyway and this would soon plant seeds of dissension. Second, though, the mere practical reality was that northern-born Americans, and quite a few southern-born ones too, did not view the existing American nation as something which could be broken up on a whim. Yes, the federal government may have been smaller and less important in 1860 than in any year thereafter, but the federal government alone was never the nation. The United States was and is, an idea rather than a land or even arguably a people. The United States, all of it, 
belongs to those who hold that idea, whether they live in Maine or Texas. The citizen of any state must be treated as a citizen of all the states. When the Dred Scott decision first broke that rule, it outraged so many Northerners that it gave the Republican Party a massive boost. Secession furthered that notion to an exponentially greater degree, and also, to an exponentially greater degree, united Northerners behind the Union. In this, the Confederates erred, for in feeling or professing to feel no kinship with Northerners, they failed to understand just how strong that identity as Americans was. Furthermore, having complained for years about the economic disparity, without having done anything about it, they failed to take note of the sheer industrial power available to the North and ignored the population imbalance in turn. The North, including the border states, held 22 million souls, and nearly all of them were free men. The South had only 9 million, of whom over a third were slaves. And yet, even at this late hour, many still hoped that the vast potential war machine would not go into effect. Abraham Lincoln held out some slim hope that he could dodge open war. Jefferson Davis still feebly claimed that his Confederacy merely wished to be left alone. The problem was that Davis asked for more, much more than Lincoln could offer. He kept trying to steal more states away from the Union. His peace policy was, therefore, frankly absurd and self-defeating. It convinced only slave owners in the main because they had very good reasons to be convinced, but no one else. So in the end, it would indeed be war. It had to be war. The armies, some of which had already begun to develop in each section, slowly assembled, and men spurred the machinery of death into motion. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for an exploration of the geography of war.